0: Okay. All right. So I'm recording now.
1: Meredith Blake works on gender and violence issues at Harvard University. And when she went into quarantine a couple months ago, she started to take pictures of her daily life, of the food she'd cooked or groceries she'd bought for posterity. One day, she got home from a trip to a local drugstore.
0: And I took my phone and I went to take a picture of what I'd bought and I was shaking so much that I couldn't take the picture. That's when I realized that I was kind of terrified. As someone with a history of asthma, as somebody who's had the experience of, of being in the hospital and you know hooked up to oxygen, it had just kind of crept up on me. I don't think I had really known how concerned I was until I saw the physical manifestation of it. Um, in in myself. So I, I think that was when I I know that I was having a very serious kind of physical anxiety about what was happening.
2: Overnight, growing outrage in Minneapolis over the death of a Black man in police custody.
0: I must have learned about George Floyd's death as soon as it hit
2: thousands of demonstrators taking to the streets, blocking intersections as police use tear gas to push back the crowds.
0: I follow a lot of black activists and leaders on Instagram, but certainly did not expect things to unfold the way that they did.
2: What started on a street corner in Minneapolis has become a nationwide explosion of grief and anger.
0: I had Maybe two initial reactions to the protests, the first being that I was excited to see people out there demonstrating and taking this seriously and protesting for their rights. The second reaction was certainly that this was a major concern, that there were so many people so close together during a pandemic. I had kind of decided that because of my history of asthma, it wouldn't make sense for me to join and that I should donate and support financially but not physically put myself out there. And that was also a conversation that I was having with friends and colleagues about really weighing the risks of this pandemic with the civil rights action that was happening. Well, thousands of
2: protesters have gathered at the State House. It's spilled down Beacon Street, and here into Boston Common. You can see the thousands here in Boston Common.
0: I can remember really clearly the Sunday, May 31st, when I decided to go out and protest. It was actually because I got a text from a colleague saying that they were going to go to the protest. And I remember kind of reading the text and sitting down on my bed and firing off a response that said, I'm going to try and be there, but I'm just thinking through the safest way to do that. And then I spent, you know, a few hours kind of pacing around my apartment. You know, I started trying to write down all the reasons why I was going to do this and why I felt like the risk was worth it because I had decided that it was worth it to me personally, that this was an incredibly important time in our country's history. And I was not just willing to take the risk, but I felt obligated to in the name of upholding justice. Pretty much as soon as I left my house, you know, with my mask and my hand sanitizer wipes and, you know, just being like, I'm gonna do this, I walked out and the sidewalks leading to my bus stop had Black Lives Matter written in chalk in all different colors kind of on my way there. And that for me just, I don't know, it made me feel less nervous, right? Like it made me realize that other people were out and that we we were doing this thing, that there was a movement happening and I could see it very visibly before I even got to the protest. This protest began in Nubian Square about 6 o'clock tonight. And One of to the, the aspects of substances. Boston is it's a city. highly segregated city. So for me to actually get to Nubian Square in Roxbury, where the protest was starting, it would have taken me three buses and about an hour and a half to get there. And at this point, I had not been on public transportation in about two and a half months. So I decided to go straight to the Boston Common, which is it was one bus and a two mile walk. So it seemed like a safer way of doing things. And when I got there there was already a protest happening in front of the state house. I had tried to make myself feel a little bit less nervous by reading articles about social distancing at protests and I had looked at pictures of other protests online and been like that seems reasonable right like you can totally maintain some distance. But when I got to you know, the center of where the protest was happening, it became fairly clear that that was not going to be the case. And so, you know, at that point, I feel like I was kind of just like all in, right? Like I'm here, <laughs> um, what's done is done. I'm now surrounded by a bunch of people. But I also just was a little overwhelmed by just how beautiful and peaceful and you know, important the moment felt. As a woman of color, to be surrounded by a crowd of white people yelling, fuck white supremacy, just feels like progress. (laughs) I mean, personally, I did not invite, you know, any of my friends to go with me to the protests because I think it's a really personal decision. And... I I don't think justice is a personal decision, but I, I certainly think, you know, going out and protesting during a pandemic should come from a sincere place of activism and understanding about why it's so important to be out there. And I want to be honest about why I think it's important to be on the streets and protesting. But I'm also very aware of the risks. You can have these competing and conflicting feelings about things, and that's okay. And for me, the feeling that I was doing the right thing and that I was in the right place definitely won out. It was stronger.
1: Meredith Blake's decision to attend the protests as a woman of color despite her Mm -hmm. asthma is a personal one. And it's a decision that a lot of people have wrestled with recently, because for months now, we've been told to stay at home. So what do public health experts think of all of this?
2: You know, that's what I wanted to find out. And so I called and emailed a bunch of epidemiologists and infectious disease researchers about, you know, how to think of this protest movement, this incredible historical thing that we're seeing. Like, it it was kind of like baffling my brain. Like, this is happening at the same time as a pandemic. I needed to talk to some smart people to help me make some sense of this.
1: We'll hear from those experts. Up next, this is Reset. Brian Resnick, senior science reporter at Vox.com. What do public health experts think about the protests?
2: Big picture is that gathering people together during a pandemic is a risk. But at the same time, a lot of people think the risk is worth it, given the extreme pain of racial inequality in in America and like the, the real brutal health epidemic that results from racial inequality. Police brutality is a health problem. Disparities in our communities are health problems. And, you know, a lot of public health researchers, remember, these are people who, like, when they're not studying a pandemic, often do study things like health disparities in America and the social determinants of health. And, you know, by and large, this community is pretty united in saying, like, these protests, even in a pandemic, we endorse them and they're worth it. You know, the perspective I was looking for is, like, to try to understand, like, why people think this is worth it and to listen to them and to hear them explain thoughtfully, like, why, mm-hmm. why this is worth it, even though there are, there are real risks. Mm-hmm. And One person I talked to, uh, Zinzi Bailey, she's a social epidemiologist at the University of Miami, and she was just telling me about the different time scales that people are thinking about.
1: It is hard for me as a public health professional who also knows my history to blanketly tell someone to take all these people off the street when
3: they are protesting against 400 years of a different pandemic. That pandemic happens to not be infectious. It's not
1: something that potentially a white person is going to catch. So the idea that this is something that that kills people too, but, but broadly speaking, like, causes a ton of harm for Black and brown folks, and mainly Black people.
2: Yeah, one person I wanted to talk to was Rhea Boyd. She's a pediatrician out in the Bay Area. She's been talking a lot about how coronavirus impacts um, disproportionately people of racial minorities and kids of racial minorities. And she really emphasized to me, like, COVID is not the only health risk that Black people face.
3: Black people also are disproportionately dying from police violence. They're disproportionately dying from diabetes. They're disproportionately dying from heart disease, from Poverty, from joblessness. I mean, people are in the streets because they have to be, because that is how dire things are. And even in the setting of a pandemic, where it seems like being out there risks your life, there are so many risks on your life. You've got to be out there to try to protect it.
2: So Dr. Boyd is really well aware of the risks of COVID, but she also wanted to tell me that protests also can save lives.
3: Protest is the foundation of all the civil liberties that all of us depend on, like not just black folks. Black folks have led many of those protests, but that's what expanded worker protections. That's what gave us gender based protections, protections for queer folks in their workplace and public settings. And if people are brave enough to bring that civil unrest so we can have more equality, which we know saves lives, then we have to support them
2: if cases do increase because of these protests, and they could, they absolutely could, this is a risk, they will most likely impact the communities who have the most to gain from these protests.
1: So let's dig into the science here. What do we know about the risks of gathering outside in huge crowds?
2: There's no such thing as zero risk with this virus. Yes, outdoors is safer than indoors. Yes, mask wearing is better than none. And we've seen a lot of protesters, like at least in photos and videos, of people seem to be wearing masks. But, you know, masks help, but they don't reduce, you know, your risk to zero. And staying distant from other people, like a meter or two, like, helps but it doesn't reduce your risk to zero and you know you're seeing people in the streets like shouting and singing like anytime you're expelling breath out into the air forcefully that breath those shouts can contain droplets which can contain the virus so you know i don't want to be like all like oh these protests you know they'll be fine they're outside like no like there's a very real risk of contagion here
1: Brian, the thing I keep thinking about when I look at these protests is tear gas. We just had a big episode about tear gas. And for folks who listen to that episode, they might remember that it makes people cough a lot. They end up touching their faces because their eyes are burning. And they get help from other protesters as they cough. Is that something that people should be worried about?
2: I think I saw a virologist tweet out something like, People have been asking me about the impact of tear gas on coronavirus transmission, and this has not been studied. <laughs> but it's like a sign of the times that we're even asking this question. Right? Like, no one has asked this question before.
1: One apocalyptic thing versus another apocalyptic thing.
2: I know. Maybe somebody like a really savvy PhD student will like do this as a dissertation. But as researchers point out, and scientists I've been talking to, like part of the harm reduction of preventing new coronavirus spikes from these protests has to come from law enforcement too. Hmm. Like they should not be locking people up in small cramped cells. Like we know that cramped indoor spaces are like hotbeds for transmission. You know, they shouldn't be tear gassing people during a respiratory pandemic. I've seen so many pictures of police officers not wearing masks. You know, they could be spreading this too. Like law enforcement could do a lot to help this too.
1: You know, you've already mentioned some of the things that protesters are doing to keep themselves safe. But broadly speaking, if you're giving somebody advice because you know that they're going to go out and protest,
2: what should people be doing? So if protesting is essential, then you have to do harm reduction. So you're going into a risky situation because you believe it's critical for you to do so because you're trying to change all these things that we've been discussing. You need to be really mindful. You should wear a mask. Um, You should try to keep distance from other people, like three feet, if not six feet is better. After the protests, you know, consider yourself possibly exposed to coronavirus because you've been in a large crowd. And, you know, after you're done protesting... You know, really limit your social interactions with other people. Put yourself into a quarantine for two weeks of sorts. A lot of places are offering free COVID tests for people who have been to protests. So, you know, you might want to get tested for coronavirus. Assuming you have been exposed, like, how can you stop the the chain of transmission from there?
1: Here's the big question, right? We've talked about the risk factors. We've talked about what people can do to protect themselves. Are these protests going to make the pandemic worse?
2: Hmm. They very may well, you know, you're bringing a crowd of people together during a pandemic of a respiratory illness and these people are shouting and they're singing and they're breathing in each other's breath and that is a risk for spread and you know wouldn't certainly wouldn't be surprising if in a few weeks we do see increased cases, if we do see spikes of coronavirus in places that had protests, We might not immediately know exactly why those spikes occurred. Was it because of the protests or was it because of, you know, so many other things that are happening in society right now? And I just fear, you know, when we don't have the right data, people are just going to point fingers at whatever group they like the least. And, you know, we're going to have these really unproductive conversations and arguments about, you know, who's to blame for a new wave of coronavirus. And I just fear it's just going to bring out the worst in everyone.
1: Brian Resnick is a senior science reporter at Vox.com. The question of whether it makes sense for folks to protest given the pandemic is worth asking. Not all public health experts agree with the folks in this episode. But too often, reporters, scientists and officials don't ask the right questions. They don't ask why. Because it's clear that the protesters know there's a pandemic going on. They know, sometimes too intimately, that this virus is crushing the economy and killing people. And so you have to ask yourself why do so many people, thousands of people across the country, in every state, feel the need to repeatedly put themselves at risk, day after day? I'm Jim Ross and this is Reset. We publish episodes three times a week on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Sundays. So if you haven't already, subscribe to the pod. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or in your favorite podcast app. And if you like what you hear, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at ADRS. You can also reach the Reset team by emailing reset at vox.com. We'll be back on Sunday. Later, nerds.